0: So, thanks. Thank you for taking the time and the thought to write these questions. There's a mix of the pragmatic and the personal, and the practice orientated and the provocative. And we'll see how we go with them. First one. What are you having difficulty working with these days? (laughs) Good question. It's a good question. And there's there's some associated ones. Another says, It seems that you, like many teachers, give the overall impression that there's nothing in life that you find particularly challenging or problematic in the ordinary sense anymore. Is this the case? is that is that funny so i i want to i want to address this sincerely i think it's helpful and um you'd you'd probably get different responses from different people so that my response isn't i don't claim to be representative in any way of other people uh who might be sitting in this seat or other seats like it at different times. I don't really experience much difficulty. There, there may be things that uh, challenge briefly uh, in different times, maybe certainly, of course, unpleasant Mind states, unpleasant, you know, the basic dukkha, like we were speaking about the other day. But there's a pretty pervasive sense of freeness that runs through the the meeting with uh, those different things. And I don't take that freeness for granted, and I don't assume that it's complete in any way. I'm ready, or at least try to be ready, available on the lookout for that freeness to be challenged. There's the feeling, like I spoke about last night, of a capacity to live fully and die freely. But until death looks me squarely in the eye and makes it clear that my time is up, I won't really know how... uh, how well-established that freeness is. At times when uh, the challenges have been greatest, and I think this is pretty consistent for people who've, who are well-established and deepened in a practice, often when one doesn't have much in the way of inner resources, then when, times when challenges get difficult, one tends to go into fight or flight or freeze, panic, overwhelm, etc. As the more one develops inner resources, then the more things get difficult. The more those resources quite naturally and immediately rise to the surface. And maybe some of you know that yourself. That actually, when there's a sense of uh, danger, difficulty, uh, challenge, actually internally things slow down. One's senses, one's kind of capacity comes forth in, in that way. I say I don't speak representatively because it's different. I think for different people to teach, my teachers were all pretty much exemplars of, uh, in their in their very different ways, of um, of that kind of freeness. And yet, I also know people who can be who are uh, both dear friends and very skilled teachers who teach more from a position of a kind of solidarity with unfreeness. And sometimes people have cultivated a great deal of goodness and transformation and potency in this kind of practice um, and kind of speak with the depth of that from very much within the realm of suffering. And because of their uh, consistency and care and goodness of heart in inhabiting that and working with that and and understanding that can be of really good support to other people. So contrary to um, maybe the supposed idea, contrary to the sort of guru model, which is often um, a little distorted in its expectations of some kind of uh, spiritual perfection. I think somebody who may very much be kind of dealing with difficulty themselves uh, can nevertheless be of, of you know, profound, useful support to others in that. When I, when I look at my own relationship to all of that and my practice history, you know, it's, some of it's very mysterious to me. I think partly it's um the fact that I got into practice when I was young, I was nineteen and when I uh, started practicing quite intensively, spending um you know quite long periods in seclusion in monasteries and um, retreats and partly I think due to starting when I was young, partly due to the fact of going quite. Intensely into practice and partly due to just sort of mysterious karmic conditions the way they were um, My practice deepened and opened and uh, Quite quickly and That was profoundly Helpful for me and at the same time it was quite destabilizing there was a year or so where I you know really really didn't trust my sanity actually and where the, the combination of, of kind of very expansive and dissolving kinds of experiences and states contrasted with a really kind of incapacity to function very conventionally and a great distrust of myself and a kind of paranoia about, um, about how, to, how, to, uh, yeah, how to function and how to, how to communicate with people especially. So there was a certain kind of intensity to that process. And while it was difficult in moments during it, you know, I'm profoundly grateful for that time. And like I said, I don't take that freeness for granted. And I'm also, you know, I was uh, speaking about this last week uh, in a retreat in, in response to what seemed to me like a kind of a certain kind of glib. Um, way of speaking about freeness and pointing also to the socially constructed nature of that and being aware that in that social construct the, the world I live in affords me a lot of socially constructed freedom right? there are different kinds of freedoms right? So Inner freedom is what a lot of our emphasis has been here this week but there's also economic freedoms and political freedoms and freedoms of expression and and as a able-bodied, white-skinned, hetero male English speaker, I move through the world with a lot of socially engineered freedoms that you know society is kind of made to make things easy for my demographic. And so, and I you know I travel a lot, teach, and when I arrive at an airport, and I'm sort of struck with the sense of life freely unfolding you know, like I've been speaking about this week and I breeze through immigration I'm aware of the long line of mostly brown skinned people that don't have such an easy time at immigration and that just that question you know that's an important part for me of the, of the questioning of uh, and and the appreciation for and the gratitude and the recognition of a certain uh, d- degree of an inner spaciousness and ease and freeness. And the very real question, how much, and it's, it's hard to discern, right? How much of the ease and freeness that I enjoy in life is can I directly attribute to um, spiritual evolution, if you like? And how much of it is that accorded to me me, given the kind of privileged categories that I inhabit in life? And then there's a third consideration to that, which is just that practice opens up in different ways for different people. Someone once asked the Buddha, you know, we're all doing the same practice here, how come people seem to get different results? If we're a group of people and we've all been doing the same practices for the same amount of time, how come it's different? And the Buddha's response was, look, some people go along the path quickly and with very little difficulty. Some people go along the path quickly, but with a lot of difficulty. Some people go along the path slowly, but with not much difficulty. And some people... (laughs) <laughs> go along the path slowly and with a lot of difficulty and who's to say um, why or how that works right? the response from the tradition is that you know, it really depends on, our, on causes and conditions and yet we can't reduce those infinite myriad causes and conditions to a neat story of why I certainly see that some people come uh, that, that those, those different ways of going on the path can't just be reduced to life circumstances. Some people come from um, very, very, very difficult, disruptive, uh, incredibly unsupportive conditions in their background and their early life. And those conditions become an extraordinary um, uh, an, extra, the, an extraordinary kind of ground of transformation for them. Whereas other people come from very difficult uh, backgrounds and that difficulty seems to just stay as a wounding that, that, they, that despite a lot of sincerity and willingness, they don't manage to unpick very much even over a long period of time. Other people might come from uh, a kind of quite supportive and stable and and, uh, nourishing background, and that those conditions seem to serve as a springboard to really being able to kind of have a certain uh, access to an inner trust and an inner deepening and an inner opening of things. And yet, other people who come from a similarly supportive, nourishing background—it just seems to persist as a kind of entitlement and self-absorption and uh, and things. <laughs> okay. And then this one is a little associated. It says, "But it says, can you tell us a little about your practice history, especially the first five years, which I assume refers to the time that I was mostly living and practicing in Asia?" And you know, I wonder where where the question comes from. It may be just interest. It may be I. Sometimes I talk about that a little bit. Sometimes I might refer to it. My tendency is not to sort of get much into the autobiography of it, mostly because it can sound rather exotic. And I think the exoticism isn't particularly helpful, Munch, and because it's easy to um, me telling some story of that, or one reads some books. It's my, the early years of my practice have a lot of spiritual cliches in them. right? Himalayas, um, hermitages, you know, things like that. And it's easy for us to imagine then that that's where spiritual practice lives in some exotic cliché. So if I start telling you something, an exotic story of those early practice years, how easily it creates them seeds. Oh, 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 yes, that's uh, some kind of proper spiritual practice. And then making the comparison to rural Devon and carpet on the floor and, know... Uh, and the exoticism isn't the important thing. The, the willingness to explore, the recognition of the potency and the possibility and the promise of these practices and teachings, and then the sincere engagement with them. And that's what matters. Right. And context, presence or lack of carpet, not so <laughs> significant. Any tricks on how to stay mindful when with small children asking constant attention? The the question's interesting because I think it points to some sense, you know, how easily if we come to an environment like this, again, we think this is what mindfulness looks like. It looks like being quiet, shuffling around wearing a blanket, and eating quietly, right? If you go to a monastery, which is kind of a, you know, the, 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 what, uh, you know, mindfulness central, you know, a it, it, uh, monastery can be quite a busy place. If you go to any of the Theravadam, the forest monasteries here in England, particularly if you go on a Sunday, there's plenty of children there and families, often uh, uh, particularly Thai and Sri Lankan families coming to the monastery, but in- increasingly um, uh, other people too. And children are playing cricket on the lawns of the monastery and throwing frisbees in the summer. And there's a lot of fanfare around the making and bringing of food and a kind of festival atmosphere. And actually the monasteries have a lot more bandwidth for including different forms and expressions of life than, ironically, than lay retreat centers do. So this environment isn't what mindfulness looks like. This environment is just what an intensive silent meditation retreat looks like. And a lot of the trouble that we have to integrate our practice from this kind of environment into the other is because we somehow confuse the two. This isn't what we're trying to integrate into the rest of our life. This, you know, sitting many hours a day, you know, slowly turning our wrists around with Gail in the morning. (laughs) There may be elements of this. There may be, might do some kind of regular mindful movement practice. We might really integrate a regularity of sitting, but that's that's formal meditation practice. And the real integration of of practice, I think, consists of both some regularity of formal practices, whichever one finds most supportive, and the extension of the power of mind, the power of presence that one generates in those formal practices into the rest of activities. And therefore, the question, never mind the tricks, but how to stay mindful when with small children asking constant attention? In just the same way as staying mindful in any and every other situation. We've been calling it embodied presence. Ajahn Chah used to say, never let your mind leave your body. And there's no um, work life, home life, harmonious life or disharmonious life when things are going well, when things are going badly, when things are quiet, when things are noisy. There's no situation where it's a good idea to lose oneself. So the fundamental staying present, right, to the, the sense of demand. So that one can notice, what do you do with the demands of small children? Right? We've spoken about this widening and, uh, widening and narrowing of the focus of awareness. So, busy life, engaged life, children, parenting, etc. Wide focus. Wide focus. If are expecting embodied presence in that moment to, f- to feel like or have the same flavour as it does when walking up and down on the lawn at Gaia House, you're going to be frustrated and disappointed. Right? There's more going on. So the field, the chitta field, the field of experience is going to be vibrating more quickly, more intensely. But then it's being mindful of that. Right? Establishing oneself within the intensity, within the liveliness. And then it's no, no, no more of a challenge, actually, no different, really, to be mindful in that moment as it is in some other moment. But the quality of the field of experience is constantly changing. Affecting, like we've been saying, and being affected by what's happening internally and externally. This, this question has a title. The title is Bananas. Bananas. How can I stop judging others and monitoring the simple diet fruit bowl? I am ruining my own breakfast by watching others. I admit I took half a banana from the simple diet fruit bowl. I broke the rules but I find myself judging others for doing the same thing. I'm trying to allow it and welcome all, but I am struggling with rules, greed, gluttony. Thank you. You know, I find this kind of thing refreshing. Right? One of the most helpful things with judgment is the you know, just bringing it into consciousness, right? seeing the ridiculousness of it, seeing the hypocrisy of it. Right? Not in a way that when one castigates oneself for being neither judgmental nor hypocritical, right? I'm glad that it's sufficiently in consciousness for the person to look at it and say, wow, look, there I go. You know? sometimes we when we see of course ju- we see how judgment can be pernicious and painful whichever of the three directions it's moving in right and judging others right look at them taking food from a simple diet well, judging myself oh how can i be so hypocritical i did it yesterday etc it's the other second direction or third direction projecting judgment of ourselves onto others imagining that uh, Others are judging us, so we're we going to the fruit bowl and we're thinking, <laughs> "What do they think of me?" Right. Judgment can be per- pernicious and painful, and it gives us a very a narrow view, a fixed view, a limiting view, uh, a distorted view of ourselves and of others. But and then when we see how pernicious and painful it can be, we we easily then generate the idea, I've got to stop doing it. But how easily the view, I've got to stop doing it, becomes another layer of judgment. Oh, I'm so terrible for judging others, it's so painful and pernicious, I'm such a shit, I've been meditating for years and I'm still doing it, look at me, etc. Actually, you, can, you can't switch off the judgments. But what you can do is you can really, you know, you can kind of lighten up with them, you can recognize their judgments. You can recognize, first the judgment arises, how dare they take a banana from the fruit bowl? Right. And then second, we to just see: wow, look what I just did to that person. And you really look at them and you see how you just reduced them to banana stealer. <laughs> whatever it is. And then maybe you know, actually, maybe they're a slightly more dimensional being than, than that. And so the, the kind of the lighter touch we can actually have, not just with judgment, with a lot of the, the pernicious and painful stuff, the lighter touch you can have with it, the, the, the more it just it starts to lose its power over you. The presence or absence of judgment isn't the main thing. Right, The relationship to it, the actually bringing it into consciousness. Now, some of you have ta- heard me talk about personality before. My shorthand for personality is needy, greedy, lazy, crazy. <laughs> and that's what I expect to find when I look at myself. Right? Oh, needy. Oh, yes. Oh, I want that. Right? Look at me. Yeah. Greedy, lazy, crazy. You know, all kinds of strange stuff shows up in this mind. But I don't take it so Personally. And I don't give myself a hard time for what shows up. And if what shows up is pointing me in some kind of unhelpful direction, it might really need some attention. But there's no wrong thought. There's no wrong feeling. There's no wrong experience. There is nothing that shouldn't show up in this mind. And that's very freeing that's very liberating if everything and anything is welcome having seen it arise I might want to kind of lean back and just let it go past I might want to clearly actually consciously orientate my attention in a different direction in a more skillful direction if I see I'm going down the path of some kind of uh, actual um, generating some sort of judgmental view, some uh, mean-mindedness, then I might want to do something about that. But that doesn't mean that the mean-mindedness, it means something wrong or bad about me. So that sense of, you know, even in the writing, it I wonder, I hope, I'm not going to ask who wrote it, right? Otherwise they'll have really trouble at the fruit bowl tomorrow morning. <laughs> but I wonder if even the writing it may have actually been freeing in some way. And just like we, we laugh at it. We laugh at it because we recognize, wow, yeah, me too. It's crazy mind, judgmental mind. Right? And often we, it's, we, it's clear in the judgment that I don't really mean those things. that I don't really stand behind those things. It's not really the view of that person that I have. So all the more reason to not take it so personally. Not take it so solidly. Yeah, bananas. Oh. I have a pain around my head that only comes during meditation it changes a little every time and I'm practicing softening it comes up every time I meditate for two years it's agony and I'm getting disheartened so it's difficult for me to respond to this in a general way because it's it's something that's persistent and there's one general thing I might say about it, you know, which is when we, and it's quite common, by the way, to have some area, and it's usually based around one of the energy centers, so head being one area, belly being another area, or somewhere in the mid-point, uh, kind of chest, or mid-back, where um, a certain intensity, pressure, heat can be quite enduring over time. And um, all the, you know, the, the sort of the language of our practice seems to point to softening and allowing and softening and allowing. And of course we want to soften and we want to soften it. We want it to soften. And yet sometimes in the attempt to kind of do all the right things to basically make it go away there's, there's a, a layer, even within the intention to soften, there's a layer of resistance that we're not seeing. And so you might experiment with not trying to soften, right? Just really imagining, okay, this is it. This is how the, the head is. Maybe it's going to be like this forever, right? What about if I really let it, you know, Let the density or tension of it, really let it have its life, have its expression, have its uh, movement. Really let it be here. And with no strategy, no idea of ending it, no idea of changing it, no idea of softening it. And that might be helpful. The other thing to say is, you know, sometimes with these, these persistent things, it's really helpful to to work with somebody who can help us see what's going on sometimes clearer than we can ourselves, so you know some of you like meeting we've been meeting in groups and you've been meeting some of you with Gail individually and it's amazing right that sometimes we can we can really we can be seeing from a very particular viewpoint over a long period of time and just taking it to somebody. whose wisdom and steadiness and familiarity with consciousness is such that they can just help us see sometimes very quickly from a different viewpoint. And sometimes these things that are persistent in this way can really be helped by actually working with a teacher. So we'll speak a little bit more about that tomorrow in terms of the, the onward context of practice beyond the retreat. What is the name of the meditation, mindfulness, neuroscience author that you mentioned, Rick Hansen? And his, his first and most significant book is called Buddha's, uh, Buddha's Brain, is that right? Yeah, Buddha's Brain. Then there's a question here about sh- uh, sharing email addresses and, and sitting groups. So tomorrow we'll talk about um, the various networks of groups that are affiliated with Gaia House that um, you might be interested to join and connect with and the various different ways through sitting groups and other means to kind of... the resources for supporting practice and sangha and connection and uh, those things in life. Dear teachers, where can I study Buddhism in France or Belgium? (laughs) Chenu. So Gail and I live at a residential retreat center in southwest France and we'll be bombarding you with propaganda about it tomorrow. The sound of the chute nearby this morning reminded me that some things some things we find unpleasant I'm, not, I, I'm having trouble to read but something about the shooting this morning not just unpleasant, but deeply unpleasant, unpleasant and I would say wrong. How do I or we more skillfully persuade or change such behaviours or do we work with ourselves only so it's, um, it's, and it's, it's a question of context right? I was speaking with someone in a group uh, today or yesterday about the connection or sadly sometimes the lack of connection between um, contemplative life and activist life And, you know, contemplatives and activists tend to be the two groups of people who are most interested in change. A lot of people, maybe the majority of people, resist change and either don't want change, don't like change, don't interest themselves in change and actually are quite attached to at least a semblance of security and sameness. But there's two broad groups of people who have a vision about the possibility for real change and commitment to bringing that real change about. Activists more focused on outer change and um, contemplatives more focused on inner change. And yet you know, the inner outer distinction is a fictitious one So it's important that we can distinguish, but ultimately we don't live either in an inner world or in an outer world. We live in this world, which interpenetrates inwardly and outwardly. And we might feel that when we're sitting here this morning, like the person saying in the question. And there's a focus on sensation and embodied presence, and then we hear gunshots. And suddenly it's not just an inner world, right? Where immediately, it's not just the hearing that, that, penetrate, that interpenetrates between the outer world where we say the gunshot's happening and the inner world where we say the hearing's happening. It's also the affect that penetrates. Right? Is the suffering out there with the fox or the rabbit or the bird that may be being shot? Or is the suffering in here where one's feeling the resonance of that? Or is it a kind of a nonsense, a strange uh, and unhelpful distortion to separate the inner and the outer in that way? And I think it's, it's uh, the, the understanding and responding to the non-separation of inner and outer that can help activists really learn from contemplatives and can help contemplatives learn from activists. And there's quite some exchange goes on in that world. I just spent uh, last week with somebody who was uh, coordinating the whole month of rolling resistance at Preston New Road and the uh, fracking protest that ran through july and it's, you know it 's quite inspiring to to listen to the dedication of people, putting themselves in, in you know, uncomfortable and challenging situations. I 'm not sure you're familiar with the locking on that the activists have been doing there, but, but you know, really trying to, with really you know, deep concerns about the impact of fracking on the water supply, on the local ecology, and, and all kinds of other um, outflows from that. And then the willingness to basically, in order to slow the delivery of trucks and equipment to the fracking site, constructing these incredibly elaborate tubes made of layers of wire, carpet, rubber, metal, concrete, things that are incredibly difficult to cut through, basically, so it takes hours and hours to be cut through. And then these very ingenious ways of attaching themselves in the middle of the road to these things so that everything has to grind to a halt where they're cut out. And there's somebody doing this work I was uh, speaking with who's a, who's a good friend but also has a, you know, uh, a very steady inner practice. And so that sense of, you know, spending three hours having one's arm cut out of all this stuff by police with heavy cutting equipment and the establishing of a human connection. You know. And, you know, when, when inner and outer come together, when contemplative life and activist life come together, one has the best of the willingness to make a difference for what one believes in the world and yet without the demonizing of them. And the polarizing of you know right and wrong, us and them, good and bad, which otherwise can can be you know carrying so much you know um, difficulty and violence with it. So no, don't only work on yourself. And you know we have to we have to find what our what calls us in that domain, and what and what our reach is in that domain, and what our circumstances give us in that domain. Yeah. There's there's ways, definitely, certainly, all of us can be can feel the call and the possibility to make a difference. And you have to find for yourself what the range of that is, what the theatre of your difference making is. And it may be. Uh, on a grand scale and it may be on a small scale and I don't think it's uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, they're charged topics right, whether it's fracking or whether it's looking at the you know various uh, do- stuff to do with social justice and political uh, um, inequity and the you know, grave ecological situation etc, they easily become very charged topics And so we can either feel an outward pressure from people, you should be doing this, or we easily feel the inner pressure, I should be doing more. But I think we have to look at our lives and see, what's the theatre, the range of my difference-making? We are constantly, like we've been saying, being affected by and affecting the environment. So what's my environment? How am I affecting it? How do I want to affect it? How can I affect it? And that might be uh, the scale of that really, really varies according to our capacity, according to our vision, according to our circumstance. And then there's a few questions about um, metta and the heart practices in different ways. Martin, I've noticed you don't seem to teach the metabhavana practices in the traditional way, i.e. using phrases and directing them at different beings. Is there a reason for this? And do you have an opinion on the usefulness of these practices? I am drawn to practice, but often repeating phrases doesn't seem to really do much for me. And somebody else says... Is it possible to combine body, breath, spacious awareness, etc., like we've been practicing this week, along with a more explicit cultivation of love, meta, or is it wiser to acknowledge that they are separate practices and treat them as such? I am aware, they say, the person says that we've what we've been doing does cultivate kindness and care and love, but I mean in a more explicit way. And um. You'd, again, you 'd hear different responses from different teachers. Um, some people have found and the 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 formal repetition of phrases uh, in as ways to cultivate the whats are known as the the um the divine abidings or the brahma viharas or the the, the limitless qualities of heart have found those to be incredibly powerful, healing, soothing. Um, evocative, etc. And so I've got nothing to say against that. That's wonderful. the 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 assumption tends to be in court that though that's the traditional way of doing it. It depends, you know, you know. Some traditions tradition can be a very recent thing, right? It's it's. It doesn't go all the way back in the Buddhist tradition way of doing it that, th- that way, but that doesn't matter, right? Like I've said several times, both here and in groups, if it's useful, it's good. The, if something's helpful, that's a much, much better criteria for doing it than because it's traditional or not traditional, because it's new or old, because the Buddha said it or didn't say it, or because one's teacher does it or doesn't do it, right? Having said that, the, the, the place which I, one of the things I think can be unhelpful is the sense that, as the person says, that they are two separate practices. As if somehow I'm cultivating awareness, wisdom, clarity over here, and then at another moment I'm going to do something else called cultivating kindness and gentleness and warmth of heart, If the awareness that one's cultivating isn't a kind awareness, a gentle awareness, a tolerant awareness, it won't go very far. One can't really penetrate into one's experience if one's not bringing a lot of gentleness to the process. And similarly, if if there isn't some clarity and wisdom and steadiness to it, it's not really going to be very loving, actually. It's not going to have the potency and the depth and the strong heart to it. It's more, it's, the tendency is to get overtaken by a kind of sentimentality. So there's the, for two reasons. One, I, I always found the phrases, just in my own practice, kind of contrived. And not so, not so much unhelpful, but I found them unnecessary. Because the sense of one practice, giving metaphor awareness, we might say, giving a kind attention, a recognition, like I've been saying, of bringing things in, allowing the content of mind to be felt and made room for and cared for. So my own, in my own practice those qualities being um, inseparable in a single practice always stood out for me. And so that's the way I tend to teach. So that's not any kind of, uh, to be disrespectful in any way of the formal practices, but I don't teach them. So... um, there's plenty of people who teach those practices, you know, powerfully and beautifully. And if either one has had um, uh, good experience with those or one's interested to pursue those, Sharon Salzberg has a couple of very good books about those practices. Sometimes those kind of retreats are taught here. And yet I think it's also important to make room, like the other person says, the, the love of or deep interest in metta, and yet the sense of the phrase is not being so helpful. So, if the phrases aren't helpful, no need to generate phrases about that begin with may. May I? May you? May they? May you. no need, right? And so phrases, if they're helpful, no need if they're not helpful. I usually teach a retreat once or twice a year. It's certainly once a year at the Moulin in France, which is, which is. Um, which is completely focused on the developing of the heart qualities. And so there's the kind of formal ways of really tuning one's attention in that direction towards warmth of heart, radiance, goodwill, towards compassion a kind of deep responsiveness of the heart to suffering, of joy, appreciation, delight, the way the heart has this vast capacity to really let in beauty and wonder and the spaciousness of heart, that openness and evenness of heart that can make room for whatever arises. And we we look at those four qualities in depth and detail and, uh, and yet without using the, the sort of stock phrases, if you like, which I think were first, first introduced in the Visuddhimagga, which were Burmese, um, came out of the Burmese commentarial traditions uh, about a thousand years after the Buddha, I think. The retreat has brought me very much insight, relaxation and clearing Still I cannot wait to leave. <laughs> how come? I don't know but I I don't know how come, but I do know the experience. Yeah, mine's trickier. I mean, there can be there can be uh, just an You know, bright, energetic quality to that. Wow, beautiful, wonderful, benefit, healing, clearing, yes. And starting to come to an end? Okay, what's next? (laughs) And yet there can also be a way, it's amazing to see how we can kind of hijack our own well-being in some way. Just like when we leave and you kind of, the sincerity and the wish, I'm going to meditate every day, it's so great. And we know it's great. I know it's good. know the effects are beneficial but I don't actually end up doing it right so we'll speak to that a little tomorrow and the other question I'm aware of the time and we'll stop soon but the person asked another question what to say to people when they ask how it was it feels important and not letting the mind go off with a story it feels limiting, it's difficult. You'll find that even tomorrow morning, people will start to speak with each other and someone will say, so how was your retreat? And you'll say, ah, ah, where do you want me to start? Because you know? there's a lot that goes on. A, there are many mind moments, right, in, the, in a week on retreat. And I, I would say in, in trying to speak about this, if, it's, if you're speaking about something that feels you know, precious and profound, you want to take a little care of how you share that and who you share that with. Right? It's like if you give somebody some treasured gift and they're not and they're like, yeah, whatever. It's like, ow, that hurts. Right? So similarly, if one's exposing a kind of the heart gift of this, but oh, it was something I've been doing, something I really care about, something that's important for me. You want to. Take the time to express that with someone who you basically can trust that they they're willing to hear and they can at least you know understand something of what you're speaking about. So sometimes the best answer might be, "It was fine." <laughs> hmm. How was it? Yeah, it was interesting. And just to, to gauge uh, in a, a little way if the if the question actually has enough sincerity to it. To warrant the sincerity of the answer, because sometimes we ask, you know, how are you doing? Uh, how was your retreat? And we don't, we're not really interested in the answer. Right? I remember that was part of my struggle after the, <laughs> the first couple of years in retreat. And I remember coming back here from Asia, and you know, this kind of very fine-tuned interest in what's happening moment by moment I- internally. And then someone say, "How are you?" I'd say. Well, (laughs) and then I quite quickly got it that, uh, that, you know, this wasn't a kind of, like, meditative (laughs) process that we were entering together. (laughs) And finally, someone says, you've mentioned the Pali words bodhi and chitta." Do the different nations work together to make the compound term of bodhicitta? Or is there more to it than that? So, bodhi means uh, awake, right? Coming the same root as buddha. Buddha means one who's awake. So, buddhism really just means awakeism. Right? And chitta means the mind field or the field of consciousness. So the term bodhicitta, which is used a lot in the Tibetan tradition, but uh, generally in Buddhism, bodhicitta really means the, the, when the field of consciousness is, uh, is pointed towards awakening, um, has the momentum of awakening to it. So some, tradi- some practices uh, use ways to cultivate bodhicitta. Right? And so something to do with the, the momentum of practice, the pointing in that direction. And it may be at first that we need to kind of motivate ourselves in that direction. It may be that despite our best efforts, we don't really manage to motivate ourselves in that direction. But... Uh, there's something about the consistency of practice plus the, when we, as we really start to see the benefits of practice that that momentum has a way of building itself until at some point we can really recognize bodhicitta as the fact that this, I really care about awakening I, just, I really care about taking care of mind and heart and body and world I really care about what's going on here and what's going on here? I care about awakening, not in here, but also in those around me. It starts to be that we, we see it's painful to see ourselves being unawake. It's painful to see ourselves willfully distracting ourselves from what's actually, what we actually care about. It's painful to see others um, caught in their patterning or their defences. And the pain of that is such that the, that the the chitta, the consciousness field, just w- wants to, longs to, can't help but move in the direction of kindness, wisdom, contact, clarity, exploration, and that sense of of that being a kind of mutual uh, process the wanting to share that possibility, support others in that possibility in, in whatever kind of way. So, we, while that's not explicit often in this tradition, it's part of what the momentum, the practice momentum of being on retreat is. It's cultivating bodhicitta. So, may these reflections, and may our practice together be in the support of bodhicitta and pointing ourselves towards an awakening and supporting the depth and potency and importance of awakening and being a source of awakening for ourselves and each other and those we love and those we have contact with and all beings everywhere.